lesson plan, oddly enough, has agency.、Uh, and you know, even though we may have designed it ourselves, you know, it kind of speaks back to us in some of those moments. So, I think part of the idea of kind of more joyful, meaningful, creative learning is to be able to step away from that, to have, to be able to be. You know, fluid and flexible, and improvise in those moments. That doesn't mean throw all structure and design out the window. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon, and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Ron Bagetto is an internationally recognized expert on creative thought and action in educational settings. He holds an endowed chair at the Arizona State University and is a fellow of the American Psychological Association.、Um, he's also been a great mentor of mine, and I'm honored to、uh, have had him serve on my dissertation committee. So, welcome, Ron. Great to talk with you and have you on our podcast. Thank you, Ed. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, you know.、Um, We we titled this program "How to Have Kids Love Learning," and it intentionally was not how to coerce or get them to or whatever, but to have them have it as though it's a natural state of being.、Um, and um, and I know you know、uh, being a father, this is also a subject that's close to your heart beyond just the research that you do. But you know when I think back about the many conversations we've had over the years, one that really sticks out is you you often talk about the. The tyranny of the lesson plan, and how <laughs> you know, we still, and many of our universities, train teachers、um, to focus on control and order.、Uh, speak a little bit about that, because I think you know it's just inherent,、uh, and, and it just seems to be a, a problem that that is you know just difficult to to move away from. Yeah, that's uh, you know, I'll, I'll back up a little bit and even talk about the title of this. Podcast that you crafted, and I completely agree with you. you know, learning is a natural state for all people,、uh, including and especially young people. And it's something that you know we often don't even think we are doing intentionally, <laughs> and it just happens. And you know, it's not always、uh, a joyful state. Sometimes learning comes through struggle, and so sometimes a signifier that we're learning is that we are feeling some sort of discomfort. But again, it's not something that typically has to be coerced or, you know, made explicit that you're actually learning something.、Um, it's just something that we do as humans. It's always and already happening. And so I think that when we think about, okay, well, what about kind of formal learning in school, where where folks are trying to, you know, impart knowledge and skills.、Um, On young people in order to prepare them for the future, that's usually the kind of、uh, the goal. You know, there's a lot of goals of education that are hotly debated, but that's one I think most people agree on that we're what we're really trying to do is prepare young people for the future. And I think the issue with that, Ed, is、um, first of all, there's not 
a future, there's multiple futures, multiple possible futures. And I think education has kind of carved out one tiny slice of that, which is the foreseeable future, which has a little bit less uncertainty. So the idea is, you know, young people are likely going to need to know how to do these things. And some of those things, again, would be hard to deny, like know how to read, know how to write, know how to do basic computation and so on. Um, but as you start pushing out beyond that um, towards things like Algebra 2, for example, <laughs> Algebra 2 is a very important set of knowledge and skills that you're going to need if you go on to more advanced math and, and, a, and a narrow slice of professions. But for folks that don't do that, it's a pretty hard sell for young people. You know, my daughter's going It was for me. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, I saw this comic strip that, that's, you know, had a parent saying, I finally got to use Algebra 2. And the, the other person's like, well, how did you use it? Like helping my kid with their Algebra 2. You know? So, I mean, I think that's, that's to the extent of it for many of us, that's kind of when, if ever it will happen. And my daughter, you know, raises questions about that all the time. And so then it becomes this interesting thing where we have a lesson plan. And what we're trying to do is specify based on known knowns, what's already known and doable. And, you know, trying to convince kids that you're going to need to know and be able to do this. And so that becomes this kind of circular backwards design logic that we're preparing kids to do. And that oftentimes is not very persuasive or compelling to kids. And I think people are becoming even more concerned about some things that we're learning, particularly school, if you go on for further education, where it starts costing a lot of money, you know, this promissory note doesn't always pay out um, in the promise. And in fact, there's, you know, we know from the student loan debt crisis that it's not only, you know, a bankrupt promise, but it might actually be bankrupting students who buy into it, which is, you know, a pretty serious thing. So the idea of the tyranny of the lesson plans, it's actually at one of my colleagues in creativity studies. Um, uh, he, he came up with that concept. And when he heard me talk once that there is a tyranny to this lesson plan. And, and the idea with that is it's, it, there's a tyranny that not only that it imparts on, you know, what students want to learn and be able to do, but also the teacher, it's almost like the lesson plan. Once you write the plan, it actually becomes an agent in the learning space that you can't let go of the plan, even if the lesson's not going well. And there's actually research that shows that, that when a lesson is going, is going poorly and even the students are giving you all kinds of signals, we hold even tighter to the lesson plan. I know I've done that um, as, a, as an instructor and professor and, you know, many people have had that experience. So it, it's interesting how it becomes, once you specify, like, these are the learning objectives, I have this amount of time and my goal is to get there. Uh, the teacher doesn't want to depart from that goal uh, because it kind of raises questions about your own competence as an instructor. Um, even if the students want to, and even if this, even if that goal isn't, doesn't seem to be viable in that particular context. So I think it can become tyrannical in that case. Um, it can also become tyrannical when a teacher does see the value of going off the plan and, and does in fact do that and pursues kind of an unexpected moment where a lot of richness and creativity and learning can occur but they're being observed by an administrator who said who had the lesson plan in advance and says, I don't see that on the lesson plan. I actually had a teacher tell me a story about that. And the teacher's like, of course you didn't see it. I could have planned it, but it was one of the most beautiful teaching moments I've had in 30 years. Um, and, and the principal retorted by saying, but I don't see it on the lesson plan. <laughs> so that's a pretty tyrannical situation, right? So it's like the lesson plan, oddly enough, has agency 
Uh, and, you know, even though we may have designed it ourselves, you know, it kind of speaks back to us in some of those moments. So mm. I think part of the idea of kind of more joyful, meaningful, creative learning is to be able to step away from that, to have to be able to be, you know, fluid and flexible and improvise in those moments. That doesn't mean throw all structure and design out the window. We do need structures and designs. Otherwise, people who have not gone into a lesson, who have gone into a lesson without a plan, know that you could easily drift into curricular chaos, which could be equally frustrating and confusing and so forth. So there is this kind of interesting balance um, where we have to kind of move in with what may be called disciplined improvisation. So uh, Keith Sawyer talks about that. I've written about that as well, where you design something, but you're not so committed to the design. Um, you have some maybe non-negotiables, but you still are operating more fluidly in there. You're improvising, you're, you're playing off notes. Like, you know, the, the jazz great Miles Davis says, there's, there's no bad notes um, in jazz or, or life. It's the next note you play that determines whether it's good or bad. So, so if you kind of go off script, for example, or somebody said, a kid says something unexpected, it's what you do next that can determine that. And sometimes that means returning to the lesson. And sometimes that means leaving the lesson plan behind. Mm -hmm. You know, one of your many books is called My Favorite Failure. Um, and it speaks to uh, rethinking, you know, I, I, there's so often I've been in classes and I've, I've engaged with students, middle school students in particular, where they, you know, they were doing an interview with someone, they got all excited about it, and then came time to write, you know, and so they sit down at a, at a blank computer screen, and they go, I don't know what to write, right? and, and because there's such an emphasis on perfection, that they feel like they've got to get it right the first time, and I said, well, what did, what did the person say that really inspired you, and they could easily just tell me, I said, well, we'll write that, and she looked at me and went like, oh, Really? Yeah. I mean, just write that. I said, the wonderful thing about word processing is that you can move sentences around. You can start at the beginning. You can start at the end. You know, but we still have this sort of linear notion that uh, everything's supposed to be right the first time, you know, uh, and I don't know how we break away from that. I mean, what do you? Yeah. So, you know, that's a great example of that. And I guess where it really came home to, to roost for me is when I was directing Innovation House at the University of Connecticut. And the curriculum was a very kind of wireframe curriculum. It, it, had a, it had a lot of elements that the majority of elements were to be determined by the students. And so these are students from all different majors. Um, they've obviously been really good at school because they're at the university. And so they're invited into identifying a problem that they think is important to solve, even if other people don't see that. Now, this was a very unusual request for many of those students. Uh, as good students, they knew that the, the way to be successful in school was to meet expectations in expected ways. So I would say it's not even about perfection. It's about they learn pretty quickly in school. I think we all do that really success is trying to figure out what is being expected of me and how am I supposed to meet that expectation? So not only being correct, but providing it in a way that's expected. And so, you know, the students would didn't believe us and they would ask, well, what problems should we solve? You know, and, and it just, it spoke to their prior experiences of, you know, maybe being invited to share an idea and then being dismissed of, well, you know, we accept all ideas except for that one or something like that. So, and it also spoke to their identity of what it meant to be a good student. So 
you know, letting go of that, like what happens if I don't know what to do or this is a failure, then am I no longer a good student? Because I've always been successful in school. Um, so there's a, there's a lot behind that, uh, beyond perfectionism. I think perfectionism is one element, but I think it's just expectations and the expectation to do things in expected ways. And so what we realized in the second year is we have to start with failure. We, and I think all teachers should start with failure. So if you're teaching mathematics, instead of playing people bingo or, you know, some we're going over the syllabus or something like that on the first day. What if you as the instructor started out by sharing your own favorite failure in learning math as a student and then invite the students to share their favorite failures with each other or, or maybe even just jot it down if they don't feel comfortable sharing it and just, you know, kind of front load the experience with, look, life and learning are filled with setbacks and sometimes failures and sometimes painfully embarrassing ones. And so this framework um, that... I started refining and developing with my colleague, Laura McBain at Stanford D School, really got into this idea of, okay, let's tell a story of, of a time we failed. And I think it's really powerful if it's in a particular subject area, but it could be in anything in life. And anytime you're inviting kids to learn or do something new or be creative or innovative, this, it's really important to start with failure. And then after you tell that, the next thing you should say is, what did it feel like? Because there's a lot of slogans in education about you know growth mindset have grit, be self-determined, <laughs> all these things, that really falls flat when you have, um, you know, experienced giving a presentation and all of a sudden you freeze and it's just one of the most embarrassing and sometimes shameful experiences. You know, having grit in that moment doesn't cut it because it, you just want to disappear into the ground or run out of the room, right? So I think it's important to talk about negative emotions and that you're likely to experience those again even in this class, when you experience setbacks, and it's okay, you know, why can't negative emotions be in the classroom as long as kids aren't destroying property or hurting other people or some for themselves in that moment? Why can't you be frustrated, right? So I think it's I think part of it is just talking about there are going to be negative emotions about this, and then most importantly, you know, what you learn about that moment, and what did you learn about yourself, and why is it your favorite? And when you have share those narratives like that, and then you can set a context where you say, okay, what are we going to do when you run up a roadblock and you're really frustrated or you feel embarrassed or you do something, you know, and you just want to run out of the room? How are we going to step in and support each other through the failure? How are we going to kind of own the failure together and anticipate it together? And I think when you do that, um, it really does build the trusting environment. I, for the longest time as an educator, I had it backwards. I always thought, well, you know, we need to establish a trusting environment before we take risks. The truth is, by taking risks together like that, by sharing these narratives of favorite failures, that's how you build trust. You build trust by taking risks first. And it starts with, I think, the teachers and the coaches and the adults that are supporting student learning and, and creativity or whatever aspiration you're trying to support young people in. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit about legacy projects and and uh, the work that you're doing around that because I think it's it it definitely dovetails into what we're talking about. Yeah, so legacy projects again, um, that really serves as the basis for my curriculum and innovation house. But I've used that um, in K through twelve settings with teachers. I've taught it to administrators and of course uh, students. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was working with two classes of seventh graders, and 
what it is is an invitation for them to really experience structured uncertainty, but most importantly, to realize that they're kind of creative agents of their own lives now and into the future, that they can really help start defining their own possible futures and possible selves. And so what that framework involves, it's really just four simple questions. And it starts out by inviting young people to identify a problem or challenge that they see as a problem or challenge that maybe nobody else does, or maybe creating something new that they think is needed that isn't present in their school, community, neighborhood, state, or beyond, and really kind of engage in that possibility thinking of, you know, what is something that I think is an important problem? And so kind of working through and spending a lot of time on problem finding. I think it doesn't have to happen in one session. It should happen over time, you know, revisiting, talking to other people about that problem, because oftentimes young people have never been invited to do that. They're usually given a problem that's already been solved and it's it's somebody else's problem, essentially. Right. So they're not used to being asked, like, what do you think is a problem worth solving? And so a lot of times and particularly, uh, again, seasoned students will say, you know, I want to come up with an app, for example. Well, you know, that's a solution. What's the problem? (laughs) So helping them understand the difference between a problem and a solution. Um, Because again, they haven't had the opportunity to engage in problem finding, which is a very imaginative and creative experience. And it takes a lot of time. And so this doesn't mean it takes a lot of time because when teachers hear that, sometimes they feel like, well, I don't have any time. So it's about, can you remove some curricular space, even five minutes a day, where you could just have kids engage in problem finding. And maybe you do that over the course of a couple weeks, a month, a couple months, until they land on some problems that they really think are important. And it could be them working alone or other people in the classroom or even people outside the classroom. And once they identify the problem, so that's the first step, what is the problem? The next step is, why does it matter? Who cares? You know, if you're going to solve this problem, you're going to likely need help, and therefore you're going to likely need to be able to communicate why this problem matters. So who does this problem impact and how do you know that? Maybe you need to collect more information on it. Maybe you've experienced that or seen it, but how widespread is the problem? What what would happen if nobody does anything about it? Um, and you know why are you the one that's interested in addressing it? So kind of building that case and you know the students I was working with in the seventh grade classroom, you know, many of them had seen that television show Shark Tank. So they they quickly realized like this is like Shark Tank, you know pitching an idea. Yeah. And you have to be able to pitch your idea, right? This is a problem. This is why it's worth solving. And then once you kind of build that case, then you can start exploring, well, what are we going to do about it? And that's where the students are really going to need to partner with people that have outside expertise, knowledge, resources, access to resources that can really support them. So I think, again, in school, oftentimes kids get this promissory note of someday you're going to get to solve important problems, but right now you need to learn the content first. And, you know, the the truth is the kids are ready. They may not have the experience or expertise, but they can easily, like we're connecting virtually through Zoom or whatever, find people who do, international experts. They could reach out to them. And many folks, um, even very, very busy experts, are very gracious with their time. They'll either give them direction, support them, or point them to people who can help, especially if the ask is from the students instead of the teacher. So again, this, yeah. 
Now, as a, this is what, why it dovetails so nicely with the work that we're doing with the Journalistic Learning Initiative, which inspired us both to to write a paper together about, yes. about this. Because because we're you know we're finding that kids are you know the, the the police chief is coming into the classroom to talk to sixth graders, you know, and and he feels a better sense of connection with the community. But they all of a sudden are just honored by the fact that somebody in that level of position would even talk would talk with them, you know, about these different issues. So. Um, yeah, I mean, say more about that because y- yeah. you early on really realized how this sort of journalistic approach um, not only dovetails with with your work, but how it can add a, an extra dimension in terms of reflection. Absolutely. The yeah. The force com- component uh, that I think is really compelling for many people about legacy projects is the idea of legacy, which actually starts at the beginning. So, kind of front loading also with legacy. So, the idea is identify a problem that can make a lasting and positive impact. And this is not just about, you know, serving yourself, even though you might personally benefit from solving this problem, we should really think beyond ourselves to this more kind of transformative learning instead of transactional learning. Like if I do this, I get this in return. But beyond that, it's really about how can I make the world a better place? How can I help people in need? How can I leave a positive impact in the world? And kids really want to do that. Um, it, I'm always amazed at the hope and altruism of young people, even when, uh, you know, educational leaders and sometimes teachers even kind of loot, their hope is a little shaky. The kids are ready and hopeful and they're ready to make a difference and they want to make a difference. And they're very activated right now, especially to do that. So this idea of like baking in legacy, like how are you going to make sure this work lives on? So if you graduate, who's going to keep the work going? You need to think about that. Can you bring in younger kids and so on? And then the journalistic overlay of all this is the power of these projects, in addition to making you know local and even beyond impact, is being able to document, curate, and exhibit that work to tell that story so it lives on and can be an inspiration to other people. So there's a kind of a primary impact of the actual work itself. Um, and even if it doesn't work out, you're going to learn from it, right? So that was our motto at uh, Innovation House. This might not work, but we're going to learn from it. But more importantly is this kind of component where journalism really comes in, documenting, telling the story from start to finish, you know, your process of identifying that problem. How did you go through that process? Who helped you out? How how did you figure out, you know, why it's an important problem? How did How did you shape that? How did you then find partners in the community and beyond to kind of partner with you to start doing something about it, to build a prototype, to to implement it, to test it out? And then how are you documenting, you know, the impact? Is it really making a positive impact or is it making the problem worse? You know, so thinking about side effects, all these things, and then telling the story through digital storytelling, through written storytelling, as many different ways that you can communicate that. So the journalism plays a central role in communicating the problem to other potential partners, but more importantly to the secondary impact of, you know, putting that out there in the world that can inspire other kids that say, wow, if those kids did that, why aren't we doing it? Or parents or school boards. And I think that's where it really can have power to leverage and create openings in the curriculum and kind of make some room, kind of nudge out the tyrannical lessons (laughs) and create room for kind of these transformative lessons that really do make an impact. And kids can say, I did that, right? It's not just that I have good grades. Look what I did. I think that's a much more compelling narrative, personal narrative, but it also is really what kids are interested in doing. They want to leave their mark. 
And this is a way to do that. And it's a way to create artifacts that I think can have this kind of continuous creative impact. And journalism, I think, is, you know, journalistic learning plays a critical and powerful role and persuasive role in doing that. For teachers and maybe parents that are listening and want to know more about your work and, and also maybe how they might engage their their, their kids in, in this um, pursuit, uh, how do they find you? And Yeah, so the easiest way to find me in my work is just uh, my website, which is ronaldbaghetto, one word, dot com. And we'll put that in the show notes, I'm sure. But I would just say, you know, certainly you can take a look at that if that's helpful. But really, just you have the curriculum. It's four questions. Start talking to young people about, you know, what's something you see as a problem or or a challenge, you know, that you don't like, that you want to fix, or what's something that you wish was here that isn't. So, you know, there's there's an example of a kid who wanted a skate park in these farmlands of California because, you know, part of his identity was he was a skateboarder, but there was nowhere he could go to skate and nobody would drive him <laughs> and he didn't have a car. So, you know, one day the gym flooded and there was wood available and it happened. You know, who's able to bring the community together and they build a skate park. So, you know, these things can happen, something like that. And that didn't just benefit this kid. Now there's a skate park for other kids, kids that are interested in, in skateboarding in that rural area. So there's examples like that uh, that are kind of countless. But again, often the, those stories don't get told because the journalistic component's missing from it. Right. So I think so I think that's the part. There's teachers and young people doing amazing work all the time, but nobody knows about it. Right. And so I think part of it is is really curating it and just trusting yourself and trusting the young people you're working with um, to do this work and just making time for it, making space for it, for sure. I think so. Something I always talk about is lesson unplanning. Can we remove some of the kind of unnecessarily overly structured components and create little spaces to do like a legacy project, a mini a mini legacy project, for example? Again, you know, imagine five minutes a day sounds like nothing, but over 180 days, kids could come up with something and they're probably going to work more than five minutes a day on it after school. And I think this is where joy and purpose and meaning comes from, right? I think kids want to find meaning in what they're doing. And this can provide a really powerful and positive outlet for their energy to just do something that makes a difference. Um, So I encourage people to take the beautiful risk themselves. And if they want more support, you know, uh, hopefully my materials can be helpful. But I think there's a lot of folks, you know, you can you partner with people that are interested in doing this and see what can happen. And I think, you you know, part of it is just getting out of the kid's way, you know, kind of mm-hmm. providing facilitation and encouragement and resources. And also, you know, having them test out their ideas, but really allowing them to ask that question, what if and what if, what if so. Uh, I think that's the other thing, the way we talk to young people instead of saying, why don't you do this? Or you can't do that. Or, you know, that's impossible. You know, if we just <laughs> kind of broaden the horizon and say, well, what if you thought about it this way? What if you tried that? Right. And I think, uh, you know, young people can really be inspiring in not only their ideas and optimism, but in what they can actually produce and the impact they can make. Great, Ron. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun. to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.